Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? We are so excited and honored for our guest today. Michelle Miao is the host and producer of The Michelle Miao Show. The program's tagline, which we love, is your A to Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Michelle's mission is constructing opportunities for people to listen in to deep conversations, to develop an understanding, and use empathy. Michelle's show can be heard in San Francisco and nationally on the through the Commonwealth Club and on KBCW TV and Channel 44. Michelle has been the co-host as well of the San Francisco Pride Parade broadcast, and she's the president of their board of directors. She's a self-described LGBTQ plus history geek, information sponge, and lover, not a fighter. Welcome. (laughs) We are so excited to have you. (laughs) I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Susie, Susie is going to be renowned for her introductions. I don't even touch them because she's such the queen of introductions. <laughs> I did want to make one clarification. I served as the board president for San Francisco Pride up until 2018. So from 2014 to 2018, uh, but certainly have been involved with the parade broadcast for, I guess, over 15 years. So That's that makes wow. me an honorary member. <laughs> Absolutely. They yeah. take it out if they wanted to. Yeah. Um, so, Michelle, thanks a lot for coming on today. We know how busy you are. And so just want to thank you again for making time for us. Really much appreciated. Oh, absolutely. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks. So, so let me just jump right in. We've heard that you are actually pretty low key and reserved. So thank you for being willing to come on so we can get to know you a little bit. And in that vein, please tell us a significant story about your family that oh, will yeah. kind of wrap up who you are. I love my family. (laughs) I'm going to start by saying that. Okay. (laughs) Get that out of the way. Uh, But yeah, I'm one of five kids and one of three queer kids out of five. So we've got a queer majority, I like to call it. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, I grew up in a single parent home, though. My parents were refugees from Laos and my dad tragically passed away pretty instantly after a few years of um, just immigrating here. So I was two years old. My youngest sister was two months. And so raised by my mom, raised all five of us who were, you know, 10 years old and younger. And so she's, she's my queen. (laughs) Yeah, she's my warrior. And, you know, I think I draw a lot of strength from my mom um, who raised us, but we grew up you know, poor and uh, in the city of Stockton, which I like to preface by saying, hey, you know what? It is an all-American city before you <laughs> say anything else about it. Um, but happy to see that it has gotten some positive press from former mayor Michael Tubbs, who's one of the youngest and I think the first African-American mayor for the city. And, you know, he's one of 
I think the first mayor is to also try to implement a universal basic income program um, or at least test it. And so if you know about Stockton now, you probably know a little bit about about it through uh, former mayor Michael Tubbs. But when we grew up, you know, I think it still is the case, but I'll just be speaking from my own experiences growing up in Stockton, uh, you know, very heavy in gang activity. You know, we lived in a pretty violent block. And so all of our friends and some of our family members kind of got caught up in, in some of that. I think you might know of the narrative now with so many Southeast Asians having to be deported under the Trump administration because of their criminal background. And you can, you know, these are things like they could be minor and offenses, but the rule, the rule of thumb, and, and not to say that it only started under the Trump administration, by the way, but that you would be subject to deportation. And all I want to say about that is that, you know, growing up as a second generation, even a first generation, but as as kids from, you know, refugees who are trying to make it in this country brand new and poor, there are just so many things that come at you that, you know, you don't have a lot of options or resources for survival. And so it's kind of like just one of my core perspectives as an adult now on the trauma that that you go through you know being a kid who comes from a refugee family grew up very poor even as in a single parent home and then on top of that a person of color and a queer woman and the list goes on well i have to say that's enough right there and um First of all, I'm so sorry about the tragic loss of your father. That's uh, enough trauma in and of itself. So the rest of it greatly impacts your, the original loss, which is pretty incredible, the level of resilience you and your family experienced and displayed in this process. So that's a significant story. Thank you for starting off with that. That gives us a real feel for who you are. And so, you know, as this prominent personality in the LGBTQIA community, please tell us about your journey. What kind of obstacles did you face along the way? Well, gosh. What didn't I face? You know, like, I mean, I think that this entire journey is full of any kind of obstacles. And the point of it is to keep staying alive or keep reincarnating and keep evolving and keep fighting and keep pushing through. Because the day that you don't fight for yourself will be the day that, you know, you're silenced. And for many queer people, you know, that silence equals death. Right. But, you know, I, I, I guess I started the show during my time as an intern for a big radio company and i just didn't see enough queer people on the air actually i didn't see i didn't see very many uh, queer people of color mm -hmm. um to be honest and uh and i thought that that was that was just so odd right like here we are we're talking about politics and news and important issues on am radio or on talk radio but we are talking about it as if LGBTQ people didn't exist, or we talked about it as if LGBTQ people were bad and horrible. And so that kind of gave me the strength to say like, well, I think that it's a necessary conversation to be had. And so we started a, a late night LGBTQ talk radio program. And we had kids from all over the country, especially from the Midwest who were calling in at late hours just to just to talk to someone, just to come out, um, just to connect. And so from that point forward, I knew, you know, this is necessary. Um, 
I think one of the main or biggest obstacles of doing the work or trying to put our voices out there, and this might seem weird now because now we have social media, now we have big TV shows like Pose and, you know, we're getting recognized more. And I say we as an LGBTQ people, but um, back then it was, it was so taboo, you know, and, and lots of corporations were not willing to finance LGBTQ people, you know, sponsor LGBTQ people. Um, and so funding was probably one of the biggest obstacles, which then, uh, gosh, you know, I can write an entire book about, you know, trauma surrounding, you know, money, try, trying to find resources, trying to find people to support you. So in that vein, you know, how have you navigated through racism and white supremacy in that process? Because that had to have factored into trying to find, you know, financial support. <laughs> I almost feel like small this, question. Yeah, this has to be like <laughs> an entire, an entire show of its own. You know, for the radio stations, it just really wasn't a big of a draw or a niche, not to mention the big radio stations were all owned by conservative companies. And so the only way that, you know, they would even give me a chance was if I was able to find the funding on my own. So it was almost like, you know, we'll, we'll give you a job if you could pay it yourself. Wow. Yeah. And, and silly me, (laughs) I don't know, you know, when you have a dream and you want it so bad that you just, you just go for it, but you're not really thinking about the fact, you know, you're not thinking about whether it's right or it's wrong. And then obviously at that time, like if I was smarter or as smart as I am today, I would have been like this, this isn't fair, Uh, (laughs) but no, I did it, you know? And I, I went out there and I wrote these personal letters to uh, LGBTQ business owners or even appealing to business owners who might be LGBTQ supportive mm-hmm. and, and just said, you know, I think that we need to have a voice in mainstream media. We need to fight for LGBTQ rights. And out of like a thousand letters that I wrote at that time, like 10 responded and the first person to actually write a check was a, uh, a bail bonds company. Oh. Yeah. And it, it was a, a progressive bail bonds company. I mean, they called themselves a progressive bail bonds company. It was uh, bearish bail bonds. I love and, it. And I had to, I had to look it up, you know, cause they told me their story. They were really proud that they had bailed out a ton of protesters and progressive people like in the sixties and the seventies and all that that was happening in the San Francisco Bay area. So, you know, it was $200. That was the sponsorship, but, but that was, that was a financial exchange to this big company that said, Hey, somebody believes in me. And although you're not going to give me the job, somebody believes in me. And I bet there are more people who do So that, you know, in a nutshell, I would have to say, I kind of, and I would not recommend this journey for everyone out there. So just listen to me as if like, you know, I'm just a wild lucky child out there and I gave something a shot. Um, this should not be the, the way that it is. The way that it is is someone needs to invest in you. And so don't ever stand there and be like, okay, you know, yeah. let me, let me absorb this fact that you don't believe in me and go find it on my own because, because it ended up being the toughest and most heartbreaking journeys of my life. But, you know, it's an incredible message that you both end with and start with, you know, this idea that it should not have been that way. And yet, based on the resilience you experience, you were the one to do it. 
you know, like you are the one to be able to take those hits and keep on pushing. And, you know, and now you've created something that's national. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Well, so, the, the gift like, of your trauma is your resiliency. So, yeah, you know, it took me a long time to get there, though. And yeah. there were just I mean, I think that the bar for uh, how high of a, a roadblock, you know, I would have to jump. I mean, it kept getting so high to the point where in my opinion, like, I really shouldn't be here today. Like, I, right. I, I, I probably, you know, I mean, I, I'll say it, I'll, I'll be open about it. I have been before, um, but I had contemplated suicide and I had actually even tried. But for whatever reason, you know, I'm still here. So thank you for sharing that, disclosing that. I think it's really important for people in the community to hear and understand that, you know, we've, many of us have had suicidal ideation for a long time and we still managed it throughout our lifetime. And I think it, it makes it more user-friendly and a conversation to have. Because yeah, Susie's right, you know, out of trauma comes resilience, but out of trauma comes more trauma as mm -hmm. well. And it takes time to be able to integrate the two. So, you know, kudos to you for both obviously surviving it, but also being able to talk about it. Thank you. And I, I think it's super interesting that in doing our research on you, you know, we couldn't find many interviews. I was like, wow, talk about low key and completely public. Like, how do you do both of those things? That's pretty incredible. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. Like, I, I mean, I, I am pretty low key. I'm actually a professional introvert. <laughs> you read. Or I'm sorry, a professional extrovert, I should say. Oh, oh professional. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't, I love to hear other people's stories. So that's, you know also why I do what I do. And I love, I'm inquisitive in that way. And I truly care. I really love to hear, you know, what other people have to say, but I don't really like to talk about myself. Mm -hmm. And part of it is also, you know, sometimes it's so hard for me to be in the, the present. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm in a, a conversation and I'm not the one that, you know, is in, in the listening mode, yeah, it, it almost makes me feel like I'm just a little all over the, the place. And so I get really shy to do interviews because I don't want to be amazing. Seem like it's amazing, you know, oh, what is she actually saying? No, no, I, I rebuke that right here. And now you are so focused and poignant. I, I think that's some narrative you created that's not actually true. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And there's that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the narratives that you develop. You know, yeah, you know, we all have them. Yeah. Some of the trauma yeah. that keep, you keep perpetuating uh, to yourself, you start to believe certain things. Yeah, for sure. It makes sense. And it's a coping mechanism. I mean, it's, it's how you survive, you know? So it totally yeah. makes sense and ultimately thrives. So it absolutely makes sense. All right, I'm going to shift gears slightly. And I want to know, you know, you're a huge advocate in our community. Absolutely. It's obvious and it's clear. But have you had any experiences that have made you question that role? Because in that role, there's so much visibility. You know, has there been anything that has happened that's been like, oh, I wish I had, you know, stepped down a little sooner? It's really funny because I actually think about that like every single day. And the reason why is because it's been such a challenging and hard path. Mm -hmm. And then at times, like as a queer person, you recognize that all of every single person in your community is going through something or, you know, similar or having been affected or impacted by the same kind of trauma that sometimes we may not have worked out, like even within ourselves. And so you're constantly challenging yourself to really understand where that person's coming from. But I'm human 
And so sometimes I do feel defeated. Sometimes I, f- I feel like I'm not capable of, you know, handling all of this. Like somebody smarter, somebody more caring or somebody much more, what's the word, impactful should yeah. be doing this stuff. And at the same time, I'm nearing 40. I've got less than a year left before I hit the big 4-0. And I had thought that I would be somewhere completely different. And I look around at some of my friends or peers or people I've grown up with, and they have such normal lives. You know, <laughs> they've, got, they've got homes, they've got kids, they've got, they have respect within the wider community and everywhere they go, they don't have to explain certain things or talk about certain things or expected to act a certain way. And so sometimes, yeah, I do sit back and I say, why didn't you just choose the easy way out? Like, yeah. because you would have such a normal life and at 40 years old, you wouldn't be so stressed out. Yeah. Well, thanks for that honesty. I appreciate that. You know, one of the things that Susie said we focus on a lot is the intersection of racism, white supremacy, and mental health for people of color in the community. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts or feelings about that. I mean, you've already talked about, you know, the place in your life. So I'm just wondering if you have any other additional thoughts that you'd like to add about that. I have I have a lot of thoughts. I mean, I think we we talk about that all the time, and I think it goes back to, you know, uh, white supremacy or supremacy. And I always I always want to. I notice lately, like when you say white, you know, there's a lot of fragility around that, and without a lot of people understanding what we're really talking about, which is the systemic racism or systemic homo or homophobia or systemic transphobia and all this stuff that is part of a wider machine that creates the oppression right. for for us all. And so, you know, this this is is so much a part of like our entire lives. I I think that people need to recognize and realize that first and foremost. And if you don't, there's a lot of information out there to educate yourself uh, and to inform yourself. And I would say like, you know, start there because then Everything else, as far as like having a conversation about how do how do I become an ally, or how do I become less racist, or less sexist, or less homophobic, or less transphobic, or all these things that I might not understand, but I'm afraid to say I don't understand. It becomes a whole lot easier. But you've got to get to the point of recognizing it and acknowledging it and believing it. You know, you can't come out into the world and say, this stuff doesn't exist. You're just making it up. You're being emotional or you just got to work harder or whatever else like many of us here as people of color or queer people. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, this idea of fragility, I've started to re-language it when I teach and in groups is that people of color, we've been led to believe that there's this fragility. It's so fragile and it needs such handling, you know, when it's really one of the most aggressive parts of the white supremacy system. I mean, it's pretty painful and aggressive and it attacks. And so I think a a part of what's important in the community is both within our queer community and in the more dominant culture, we have to face the racism that exists. I think it's a problematic if we don't look at our own LGBTQ plus community and say, okay, it's time for us to look at it what's within the micro so that we can all have an impact on the macro. And that's one of the things that I think we struggle with. I know I struggle with. I'll speak, you know, personally. I have struggled with within our community. It's been tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know that, like, for a lot of the conversations we have, I think we get stuck on the social aspect of trying to find the solutions to this. 
And I think if we really want to make an impact and we want to create some change or we want to break, you know, the cycle of racism in this country, we really have to come together to fight some of these institutionalized ways of keeping racism alive. Uh, and, and again, going back to the systemic part, right? And so what I mean by that is, yes, the policies that, you know, this country passes are paying attention, even if it's on a local level and not necessarily having to speak up on a federal level, paying attention to who you, you know, elect into leadership, paying attention who's in leadership, paying attention who holds the money strings. I mean, we talked about it at the beginning of this conversation where it's like, I had an entire company tell me like, you're not worth it. (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? I mean, and that's how human beings are kept in this survival mode and kept uh, incredibly oppressed in which we just can't even exist. Um, You know, can't even have access to some of the basic things that the person across the street or many blocks away uh, thinks is is a normal thing to have. Right, right. You know, I'm starting to feel like, and Susie and I talk about this a lot, you know, the idea that it's really the white dominant culture's war, this systemic racism. And I feel like we as people of color have been doing it forever on the front line. And I feel like, I believe, I don't feel like, I believe that even giving the out as an ally has been, has supported the role of I'll help you do, as opposed to how about we are all become, how about we all become abolitionists? And if anything, I'll be your ally (laughs) because you created this system and it benefits you. I just think to start in the shift the lens like that gives us more of an opportunity to have honest conversations that are missing in terms of taking that lead. And you know what? That law is oppressive. Let me see what I can do personally and professionally. What's the statement I make? You know, and I talk to clinicians when I do groups and trainings about what does your website say? Does it say you're anti-black racist? Because if you're anti-black racist, everybody knows it's more of a safe place. You know, and it's been it's been an eye opener for a lot of people. They've had to go back and say, no, it says LGBT friendly, but it doesn't say anything about race. What's the message you're saying? So I think throwing those questions back is an important part of this process. I I want to quote a couple people, you know, and, and it was also a learning process for me, right? I was interviewing San Francisco Pride's current community grand marshals, Melanie and Melora Green, who are twins and both <laughs> queer and their executive directors the African-American Cultural Arts uh, Center in San Francisco. And so I had a question with the summer of reckoning last year, as far as race goes, and everybody kind of waking up to what's going on and making the connection between police brutality and Black bodies. Do you feel that the LGBTQ movement, which we tout as being there at the forefront of the civil rights movement, are we really ready to have a reckoning within ourselves. Love it. And they responded like, you know, we had really had to think about this question. We were just wondering like, who's we? Because we've been doing the work. Love it. Right? But maybe this question isn't for us. And so if you're not doing the work and you're you, and you think that you need to be doing the work, then perhaps you need to jump in here to, yeah. to the movement you know you need <laughs> like we're doing the work right. but where are you and yeah. it totally gosh yeah it, it resonated with me in so many ways and it gave me a different perspective of how we spend that right 
So that's also part of, you know, the supremacist uh, power. Absolutely. You're thinking, yeah. you're thinking you're, your whole mindset is as if you're not deserving to exist Absolutely. or that, you know, fighting for the marginalized is mar- we should not be marginalized. We're not actually in population. People of color, are, you know, at least here in California, probably be way more. California will be, you know, more of color than any other state, you know, in, in the matter of like five, 10 years here. We've had a lot of guests on this show and you're the, and JD has been saying exactly this for years and you're the first person. And it's so cool to hear who's actually said those words about the non-intersectionality between BLM and the LGBTQIA plus community. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, that's I, awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, the other thing is that the Asian community and other communities of color have been pitted against each other. And mm-hmm. they just found another way to do it, you know, with the Asian hate crime bill. You know, it was like, it, it feels so politically loaded and so problematic. And I'm seeing people react to it. And I'm like, this is just what they want because people of color coming together is the scariest thing for the dominant power in position. And so, you know, we'd lose it. What, say that again. Because we'd lose it. Yeah. And so that, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's painful to see in real time and it's painful to have watched this pattern over the years, you know? And so I appreciate when you, you know, you speak your truth and the truth that you've had to reckon with and what's come up for you. I just, I just really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot to say about, right. Like the anti-Asian racism and hate and, and a lot of what we've been saying is that America is racist. <laughs> and you look at, the history of America and the policies and Asian Americans, and you can go as far back as the beginning of time. I mean, listen, indigenous people were kicked out of this country and, you know, the country stolen from it. We could start there. Then also the history of like creating different narratives to, again, divide our communities. And what's really, really hard, I think, for me at least, and I, I'm personally speaking, is, you know, when you, you're trying to do the work every day, of being an anti-racist mm-hmm. and trying to understand all of this. The hardest part is trying to explain it to, to other people and for other people to understand it. And it goes back to a, that mindset that I was telling you about, you know, that from very early on or the moment you step foot in this country, you're already drinking, you know, whatever racist juice there is out there. And so as far as like bringing our communities together, I mean, we, we have to, that's the only way that we can end racism. I once stood up at an Asian conference years before, and it was a, an executive at a big corporation. I won't name the name of the corporation, you know, who wanted to ask about, you know, what were the top Asian issues. And in my mind, I was like, well, you know, the issues that I care about are issues like homelessness um, housing, you know, housing, healthcare, and these are issues that Black women in this country are affected at the worst rate, at a disproportionate rate than many other people. And I would say to add to that, if you're transgender and Black, yeah. it's even worse. Or you're, you know, and so until until we until we you know take care of Black women and, and Black trans women, you know, none of us can be free. Like, not, you could work on all this stuff, but the racism is still going to be there. And they looked at me like, we're talking about Asian issues. 
so there's that. So we have to, we had a course correct and we really have to think about this in a different way in which the only way out of, out of this is to care for one another. I love it. Yeah. So well said, I don't need to add anything. To I know, <laughs> I know. Let's, let's shift gears again. So, you know, therapists, we talk about the middle child and what happens and so forth. <laughs> so we want you to correct the myth for us. Is it true or not true what they say about your middle child experience or the middle child experience from your from your lens? I think it's true in a lot of ways. And then there are a lot of ways in which I think I've overcome those stereotypes, you know? Certainly as a middle child, I struggled with attention. And I mean, we all struggled with attention as five kids, young kids who wanted normal lives, who wanted parents. I mean, yeah. I wanted a father. I still have I still want a father, actually. Uh, I meet, you know, certain men who might be a little older and oftentimes think that they could be my mentor, aka, you know, my long lost father we step in for him. Uh, so I will say that, 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 that does happen. Like, you know, yearning for the attention you're struggling as the middle child, my two younger sisters, they formed their bond. And then my two older brothers formed their bond. And so I was just kind of there, <laughs> which, which actually looking back, like was, uh, it, it definitely impacted my self-esteem, right? I just always felt like an outcast and then being gay and like all that stuff. And then furthermore, I felt very distant from people. And then I always, always felt like I screwed up and I was just easy. It was just easier for my mom to kind of pinpoint me as the middle child, maybe, or that at least that's how I felt. So I did feel kind of black sheepish. And at the end of the day, though, I, as an adult, I feel like I've just overcome those things that I think I contributed to it, right? Like, uh -huh. I probably could have done something yeah. if I wanted to, to create a space for myself within my siblings. I could have, you know, done certain things to not be the black sheep <laughs> of, you know, my family. And so as an adult now, like, I really don't feel like I'm the black sheep. I actually think that I play a very important role in my family now, as far as like bringing people together and caring for, you know, a lot of um, my family members and going above and beyond for them. Um, so yeah, so it doesn't always, it, it, it might start that way, but I guess what I'm trying to say is it doesn't have to end that way. I do think it's important though to validate that experience for middle children, because I do think sometimes that gets overlooked and minimized. So I really, again, appreciate your authenticity with that. Go ahead, Suze. Totally. Okay, Michelle. So it's been said that you're actually a journalist at the core. Talk to us about, no? Yes. I, I, you know, I have a tough time, like, being called a journalist. I, myself, I would not identify as a journalist. That's why I, I said it's been said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, but go ahead. I'll let you finish the question. Well, right? it's just, we were going to ask how that informs your work. There's a part of the, I would say like over time, I certainly started the show, you know, as, as a show. And it was more about like just talking to people, meeting people, letting people be their authentic selves, queer people that is. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. over time, like I started to realize like what was at stake or what is at stake when it comes to LGBTQI people's lives. And that, you know, the politics, 
and the oppression and the the hatred and all of these things that if you didn't take a careful approach to tell the story correctly or to give people you know the opportunity right to to be educated and informed and come with the facts that we would continue to live a dangerous time and boy you know we experienced that during the trump administration so Yes, I, I feel like there are parts of what I do that requires a journalistic perspective and a way to balance the conversation to pull in other folks who might not represent you or who aren't LGBTQ or aren't people of color or aren't women. But at the same time, I'll never, ever, ever let go of the fact that it's also human, you know, to create a foundation for people to feel comfortable enough to tell you their truth and for you to believe it. Right, right. That makes sense. JD touched on it a little bit, but you're the child of immigrant parents. How has that affected you? In so many ways. I think about this again, like all the time, especially now as an adult. I mean, the fact that we had to grow up so fast. My mom still, even after 30 years, struggles with English. Uh, so imagine, you know, over 30 years ago where her English was at. So we were the ones who were reading mail, um, you know, filling out forms, filling out our own forms, filling out our own applications, and just had to become so self-sufficient, right? So just looking at it from that perspective in itself, I just feel like my childhood was so hard in that way. And then on top of it, you know, see a single parent, immigrant woman. Um, so taking laborious jobs and there was never enough money, never enough food on the table. So having to take on jobs and or as early as you could legally and, and also then being not just like self-sufficient, but also sufficient enough to take care of your family. So imagine, <laughs> I don't know, being like, a young 15 year old kid and it's not just your mom that you're thinking about, but you're thinking about your siblings as well. And then also now as even as an adult, like the coming out process and having to educate my mom about, you know, even LGBTQ issues, having to educate my mom about politics and how politics does shape our lives and, and the, every decision that she makes and the fact that, I probably won't have kids because, you know, I'm constantly always thinking about my mom. Uh, I just won't have the time and the resources to grow my own family. That's not a general statement, by the way. Many people can grow their family and they're immigrants. We know that. Right. No, this um, is your how experience. It, how it's impacted yeah. me. Like, it's just, you know what? I'm my mom's 401k, social security, my mom's caretaker, and, uh, and, and she's, you know, in old age will be my child, and I'm okay with that. Wow, thank you. That, that's so clear. I, I, I can feel that. You have said that you've really built in Northern California a little mini empire over there where you're making an impact locally. Can you say more about that? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, I, uh, I don't know if I said that, but I think that... that well, I, we read I, it. 
from somebody is maybe that was in an article or written that, but you always have to evolve in and recreate yourself, especially as an LGBTQ person and an artist. And so I started out by talking about the fact that one venue wouldn't even give me a chance. Um, so you can't stay on just one thing at a time. You just always got to put yourself out there. You know, working with the Commonwealth Club of California, working with KBCW, working with Progressive Voices, working as a doing it as a podcast, doing it as a local television show, doing it as a public forum, or doing it as whatever YouTube, Instagram. I don't know all of it. You just have to keep putting yourself out there in order to survive. I love it, and I'm also super impressed. <laughs> it's hard to do that. So you have said that you've met some of the most interesting and controversial people in the LGBT community. Is there anyone that sort of stands out for you? <laughs> oh, oh, gosh, you know, over a decade of interviewing folks. I mean, you know, w- one of the things that I trip out over is interviewing someone maybe like 10 years ago and then seeing where they're at today. Like, for example, Laverne Cox, who's now an Emmy Award nominating actress and um, one of the biggest trans voices out there, right? Most famous trans people out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I interviewed her you know, when she was a contestant on, uh, is his name still P. Diddy or is it Diddy or is it Puff Daddy? You know, the rapper you want to say. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he had some some TV show on MTV, and right. was a, was a contestant and, and uh, on that reality show. And so, you know, it's it's stuff like that that just gets me. Where it's like seeing how resilient our community is in real time. That's awesome. So, oh, did you want to add something, Suze? Go ahead. No, go ahead. So tell tell everybody where they can find you. I want everybody to have access to you. Like physically or? Yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> whatever you're comfortable with. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely. You know, we do programs. I do programs at the Commonwealth Club of California every week. And there's some great programs coming up. On the 25th, we're doing a uh, Black Trans and API roundtable discussion. I mean, we found that a lot of what you know, the mainstream media is talking about as far as Black and Asian issues, especially after the Atlanta shooting, uh, for example, talking about women's rights, talking about, you know, sex, sex workers' rights. These, these issues intersect with the trans community so much. And trans leaders have been doing the work all their lives, right? Like decriminalizing yeah. sex work and talking about the importance of that talking about uh, gender issues, especially within, you know, the, between cisgender, transgender women. And so uh, we decided to put a program together to really dive deep into that. So hopefully you'll join and you could do that by going to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for Michelle Miao show. And also Sunday nights on KBCW in the San Francisco Bay Area. If you tune in at uh, 1030 after KPIX news, you'll catch the, the local talk show. That's awesome. Well, I have That's to awesome. say, I am a uh, uh, Michelle Miao fan. I mean, yes. I, I didn't even know. I, didn't, I wasn't in the know. 
And now I am. I, I just feel enlightened. I'm so impressed and just so thrilled to have had you on and talking your truth. I just appreciate your authenticity, your time, your energy. Thank you so much. And we have one final question that we ask everyone. What does changing the narrative mean to you? Ooh, changing the narrative. You know, there are a lot of narratives that need to be changed, for sure. <laughs> Especially after the four years of, you know, between 2016 and 2020, uh, many false narratives out there. Uh -huh. and, and we've had to really address that as human beings. But I think for me personally and professionally for what I do, you know, changing the narratives is finding your truth. Yeah. And fighting the systems that will silence you or tell your story for you or tell a different story. And so you constantly have to work. You have to fight. You have to keep going to make sure that your voice is out there. It's heard. It's authentic. It's yours and exactly the way you want to tell it. Well, I totally appreciate that you've given so many people the opportunity to share their voice and even more grateful that you came on here to share yours. As I feel like we're, we're among the elite because we couldn't find a whole lot of interviews. So I'll be bragging about that for a long time to come. I think this, is, this is my second or third one, to be honest. I mean, that's crazy. Oh, that's thank crazy. you. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're um, amazing. Really. Thank truly. you. Oh, thank you so much. And Again, I'm, I'm super grateful for the opportunity. And, you know, I once Barbara said, my daughter, Susie, and, yeah, you know, all this stuff. And, and then it was just like, oh, yes, sure. Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> I didn't have to you. think too much about it. Love that, Barbara. We're going to have to have you back so much. That just yeah. feels like we were just skimming the circuit, the circus, <laughs> the surface. Again, thank you so much for your thank time. You. Really. Thank you both. It. Katie and I want to thank our fabulous producers at IM Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to immusicgroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.